traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. Coming up later, will oil companies rush back into exploration after the OPEC move to rescue prices? They're just beginning to sort of savour the possibility of a recovery in the oil price. You know, that will change their way of doing business. And how a top-of-the-range motorbike startup in Brooklyn is maximising digital technologies to bring down the cost of development. What we call the digitisation of manufacturing, what some people call Industry 4.0. The whole economics of the game are changing. But to start... After the recent referendum in Italy, the world's financial markets are jittery about that country's banking crisis, and in particular, liquidity issues facing Banca Monte di Paschi di Siena, or MPS, the world's oldest bank and Italy's third largest. To discuss the crisis, I'm joined by Patrick Lane, The Economist's banking editor. Patrick, MPS badly needs to raise new capital. Has the no-voting referendum made that harder for it? Yes, Simon, it seems to have done. MPS does need to raise new capital. The plan was always looking touch and go anyway, and the referendum result does seem to have made it harder. The plan is quite complicated. The plan that MPS and its bankers came up with a few months ago is quite complicated. It involves taking 27 or 28 billion euros worth of NPLs and putting them... Non-performing loans. Non-performing loans, yes. Taking them off the bank's balance sheet, putting them into a separate vehicle, which will then have to be backed by various financial instruments. And for the cleaned up bank itself, they have to raise, or they plan to raise, 5 billion euros worth of new capital. And that was in three broad bits, one of which involved a debt for equity swap where they seem to have raised 1 billion. So they've been talking to an anchor investor believed to be a a Gatari investment fund. And that seems to be where the holdup is. So it looks touch and go still. If they can't raise the money, what happens? Does the bank go under or is it bailed out? No, I think it would be bailed out. It's too important in Italy to be allowed to go under. And I mean, there are various things that could happen. I mean, it could be that the investors say yes, after all. That's looking unlikely from what we can tell. It could be that JP Morgan, which is the lead bank in this, which is the sort of quasi-underwriter, could underwrite it. That's also unlikely as far as we can tell. So the next thing after that would be some sort of state rescue. And that at the moment looks the most likely thing. And would the European Commission allow that? It would allow it, but there are strings attached and they're pretty tight strings. So under rules that were introduced in 2013, if a state, if a government rescues a bank, then various investors have to be bailed in, as they call it. In other words, get virtually wiped out. Yeah, they take losses. And that starts with shareholders, of course. Then next up are junior debt holders. And that in Italy is a bit of a political problem because there are a lot of junior debt holders in Italian banks who are customers of the bank, you know, local people maybe who've, uh, who are retail depositors, have bought or been encouraged to buy bonds in the bank, which they thought, a lot of them would have thought, would have been actually quite close to and as safe as deposits. Actually, they're at the other end of the seniority spectrum. So they might stand to lose. And that's a problem. 
So that seems a real problem then. If the state is not allowed to compensate investors and politically it's impossible not to compensate them, how do they go forward? Well, I suspect they'll find a way of doing that. I mean, European institutions have found ways of pulling off the impossible before. One possibility that's been talked about is this, that actually a lot of these junior bonds were missold or sold under false pretenses. So it could be that you could say, well, there was some selling here, we can compensate them either through a state fund or funds that are raised through the financial industry in Italy, and it may get sorted out that way. When junior bondholders in four small banks were bailed in at the end of last year, there was political pandemonium. In fact, at least one of these investors took his own life. So it's a very, very difficult political issue. And of course, MPS is not the only Italian bank in trouble, right? No, it's not. I mean, th- there are three small banks that also need recapitalization fairly swiftly. So that's got to be sorted out. They're nowhere near as big as MPS, but even so, that's got to be dealt with. The other thing that's on the horizon is Italy's biggest bank, Unicredit. Unicredit also needs recapitalization. It's due to announce a strategic review next Tuesday, December 13th, at which it may become clear just how much money it needs. I mean, it's got to do various things. It's selling businesses. It's said this week that it's in talks with Amundi, which is a French asset manager, to sell its own asset management business, Pioneer. It may sell off other businesses. It has to cut costs, but it also has to raise capital. And people are talking about a figure north of €10 billion. Patrick Lone, I'm sure this is not the last time we'll be talking about Italy's banking problems. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So what do you think? Can the international banking industry take another hit? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Next, does the agreement reached at an OPEC meeting in Vienna last week herald a new era for oil companies? I'm joined by The Economist's energy and commodities editor, Henry Trix. So, Henry, last week you were in Vienna at OPEC's meeting where, against the expectations of some, agreement was reached. What was the mood like among the attending members afterwards? Well, there was a tremendous amount of uh, of excitement that they actually came to a deal because uh, it was a, a game of brinkmanship that went right down to the wire with Saudi Arabia pushing for a cut, but Iran and Iraq resisting up until the last minute. So it could have been a catastrophe, but as it was, they snatched victory um, at the last minute uh, and came up with an agreement that is contingent on Russia and other non-OPEC countries agreeing to a cut as well. There's certainly been a lot of confidence this week that that cut will be implemented because the oil price has risen by about 15% since that, the meeting last Wednesday, which is a huge rally. But right now, there's an, an inkling of doubt creeping in about whether Russia is actually going to, to, to stand by its, its supposed promise. With that doubt set to one side, I mean, is the mood of euphoria almost you described shared amongst the, the oil majors, the companies themselves? Yeah, they've had a very tough couple of years. I mean, this is an, an industry that where investment since 2014, when the oil price started to fall, has plunged by kind of unprecedented amounts. So they're just beginning to sort of savour the possibility of a recovery in the oil price. And that will, you know, that will change their way of doing business. Up until now, the big challenge for the oil majors has basically been husbanding their cash. It's funny, you know, oil is an industry where 
your investors really want you to find it just so that you can turn it into cash uh, so that you can pay them dividends. Um, most of the time, anyway, that's the core business of the oil industry. And that's what they've been desperately trying to do as oil prices have been plunging. And are we already seeing them announcing plans to invest in new production, new exploration? Uh, yes. I mean, coincidentally, the day after the OPEC deal, BP announced a massive $9 billion investment in the Gulf of Mexico. It's first since the Deepwater Horizon disaster and one of the biggest investments in exploration and production that's been announced in the last couple of years. So that, that's got people excited. On Monday of this week, Mexico held what basically was a historic auction. It auctioned 10 exploration blocks in the Gulf of Mexico. Mexico has never invited private companies into the deep water areas uh, um, on Mexican territory. Um, There's an abundance of oil just south of the US-Mexican maritime border, just as there is an abundance of oil just north of it. So BP's investment last week was just north of the border. On Monday night, Mexico's auction produced a range of pledges, of investment pledges, that could reach up to about $40 billion, which is really a dramatic sort of endorsement, in a sense, of the future of oil. Indeed, for for years now, people have been talking about, speculating about peak oil, the time when oil demand will reach its peak. Has that date just got pushed further out? Well, I think that the discussion about peak oil tends to be more about whether there is actually enough oil out there. That certainly has been pushed out. I mean, you know, the the discovery of shale oil in the States basically has sort of put that discussion about whether oil eventually is going to run out into the distant future. The the big issue that people really are discussing more now is peak demand, i.e. whether demand for oil will slow because, you know, we'll start using more electric vehicles or because of fuel efficiency standards and that sort of thing. Certainly, the oil companies have been They're aware that this is a problem. They're aware that eventually, whether it's within the next decade or the next two decades, demand for their product is going to to ebb. But what they're hoping is that there's at least 10 years or 15 years more of sort of business as usual. And that's what these investments are all about. They're about finding enough oil, basically, to keep us going, keep us supplied throughout the the 2020s. And really, the question that they face is, will demand be sustained up until then? Or will these investments that they're making now end up being stranded assets that, you know, ultimately turn out to be a big waste of money? My thanks to Henry Trix. And finally, the birth of a new motorbike, and how digital engineering, coupled with automation and new production techniques, means it might be possible to revitalise inner-city manufacturing. The bike in question is produced in downtown New York, and it's called the Vanguard Roadster. And judging by its photo, it's one mean machine. Joining me now is Paul Markilli, The Economist's innovation editor. Paul, just... Tell me a bit about Vanguard. What sort of a bike is it? Well, they call it a Roadster, and it's a mean-looking machine. It's got a a big 1.9-litre V-twin. It looks like it's hewn from solid granite. It's a tough-looking machine. It is a superbike, but it's sort of priced or will be priced around $30,000, which is 
premium level. They're going for, in terms of luxury end motorcycles, for a big bit of the market. How is it made? How is it manufactured? Well, they haven't only made one so far, but it's interesting how they've got there because this is a tiny startup company with modern manufacturing techniques. They've used three-dimensional computer-aided design and engineering systems, and these systems can simulate everything. So basically, this motorcycle only existed in digital form until they actually made the first one, which is what they've got now. And yes, it's a prototype, whereas traditionally, if you were car making, you'd make lots of models and there'd be sketches and there'd be engineers running backwards and forwards and there'd be things tested. It could take years and years to get to the stage before you actually had anything you can drive. But with the increasing power and decreasing cost of computing, you can now produce these things digitally and get much closer to something that actually works, which saves time and money. So what does this company look like? Is it a lot of people in greasy blue ovals with with spanners, or is it just a, a bunch of people sitting behind desktops? Well, there's only five people at the moment, uh, and I think a couple of part-timers who come in and help out. No, this is a start-up. It's operating in Brooklyn in the old naval yard there, and it plans to, to grow big and when fundraising and with its products to actually produce a range of motorcycles. And they're talking of making several thousand a year, so it's not going to be a niche operation. They're, they're going in there to ride with the big boys. It sounds very ambitious, but is it feasible? It is indeed feasible because manufacturing is changing. So-called what we call the digitization of manufacturing, what some people call industry 4.0. The whole economics of the game are changing. The cost of entries are coming down. We've already seen new companies come into the car business. I mean, Tesla is the most famous, but there's, there are many others. And we're seeing other businesses that look to be with the economies of scale that would never be challenged. Suddenly, with new manufacturing techniques and new production systems, 3D printing is one. There's also cheaper automation. You'll be entering a time when a startup can say, you know, we're going to move into this business. We can afford to do that now. And you can do it with a few people. Now, if their idea flies, if they can raise the money, and if the bike is out there like that machine, there's every reason for them to succeed. And why Brooklyn? I mean, we're not used to seeing manufacturing companies set up in inner cities. Actually, there's a lot of manufacturing still left in New York. It's just that most people think of it as a financial and tech centre. But inner city manufacturing is something that, again, can be revived with these new technologies. And they're among several, uh, quite a large number of manufacturing companies in, in, in the Brooklyn, in the old naval yard there. And that's where they plan, if all goes well, to um, expand and build a factory to make these motorcycles in New York. Of course, I suppose one of the the aims of incoming President Donald Trump is to revitalize American manufacturing. Does this offer a sort of model or does it offer manufacturing like he wants, but without the jobs? Well, there will be jobs. They will come, but there would tend to be more high tech jobs, more highly skilled jobs than maybe some of those that have gone. These are trends that are happening anyway, and they're to some extent a factor that the president-elect can ride on because we will see more manufacturing, if you like, reshore itself back to countries where and markets where goods are to be sold. And often that's for other reasons, such as time to market or to speed up innovation or to customise products closer to the customer. So these trends are well in hand. Mr Trump will no doubt ride merrily upon them and tweet that uh, it's all down to him. Paul Markilly, thank you very much. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. 
To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.